You know, I think back to um, just when I first started here, it was really just over six months ago, and I came in here so determined to do what I do and kind of went into um, this role without uh, stopping to realize that a lot of what I do might not make total sense to you. <laughs> and, uh, and so one of the things that came to my attention recently was really the reading of scripture that I do at the beginning of every service. Um, that's something that um, I brought into the service that in the morning after we sing a couple of songs, I come up and I do a, a reading from scripture and then um, we pray and then we go back and do a couple more songs and then I come up and, and uh, do the sermon. And one thing that you may have noticed is that the reading that I do in the morning often has nothing to do with the sermon that I'm actually preaching. And that's actually um, partially by design. Sometimes I will pick out a passage that relates to the sermon that I'm preaching. But the reason why I do that reading of Scripture is because, quite frankly, it's commanded. Um, Paul, when he was writing to Timothy, it's in 1 Timothy 4.13, he told Timothy to give attention to the public reading of Scripture. Um, so I've made that a part of the service. And for you guys, when you hear me go up and reading that portion of Scripture, it's just an opportunity for you to get used to hearing the Word of God being proclaimed. And, and not only that, but taking that time to just reflect upon what you're hearing. Um, it's not a time for me to preach that passage, but merely just to read it so you get more and more familiar with the Word of God. And as you've noticed, I've been marching through the book of John as I've been doing that, uh, that reading. So that's just uh, something for you guys. Now, last week um, I did spend a little bit of time explaining to you what expository preaching was and why I do it. Um, and, and I want to expand on that just a little bit this morning. You know, I've heard um, from a lot of people that, you know, when they're describing me, I'm a little bit more of a teacher than a preacher. That's uh, what, what I hear. And I totally understand that. And I would, I would agree with that to a great extent, except I would also say that great preaching should include Bible teaching. Um, it should not be to the exclusion of. And one of the reasons why I spend so much time going into the scriptures is because when I start to apply it to your life, when I start to bring forth the exhortations, when I start to encourage you to live more as the Lord has commanded of us, I want you to see very clearly where that came from. You know, I want you to see very clearly from the word of God why I am bringing the exhortations that I bring, why I am bringing the commandments that I bring. I'm simply a mouthpiece of what the word of God says as I see it in the word of God. So when I bring it forth, you're going to have no question that after we have studied the scripture, yes, that is actually in the scripture. That's not my ideas. That's not my wisdom. That's not some marketing plan or strategy that I got from other people, um, but rather it's the conviction that's drawn out of the very word um, itself. And um, another area that I, I do want to talk about, you know, I do know that we've got um, some youth that um, are with us, not as much as this morning, because I know that uh, we've got, um, you know, some families that are away for the holiday weekend and, and whatnot. Um, but I, I do want to address the, uh, you know, parents and, and the youth that are often in our audience. Um, if you've ever read what's called the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, it is a very detailed doctrinal statement of faith. Um, if you were to read through it, it'd be deeper than what you're accustomed to reading on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, it basically encapsulates um, all the, all the cores, uh, core values that we believe in with regards to Scripture and, and God and, and the plan of salvation. But one of the reasons why I'm bringing it up right now is that that document, that Westminster Confession of Faith that is so deeply theological, was actually written for children. 
It was written for children to, as, a, as a simpler way of being able to teach the fundamentals of the faith to children. And where we have progressed today is that, unfortunately, most of us as adults who go to church would find that too deep for us. Um, now, we haven't gotten less intelligent. We haven't devolved in terms of our intellectual capacities. What I would say is that we are lowering the bar further and further in terms of what we expect from our children. Um, so those of you who are parents here in, in the audience, you've got little ones, um, don't be afraid to expect more from them. And I know for churches where I've seen um, generations of families um, grow up the right way and where I've seen um, kids you know, grow up into adults who really knew the word, it started with them being expected by their parents to actually pay attention and try to glean as much as possible from the message. Now, I understand that, you know, the sermons that I preach, you know, this is not, you know, this is not um, nursery school stuff, all right? I mean, I'm, I'm getting pretty deep into the Word, and, and sometimes I realize that for the young folks in the audience, it may not be as easy to follow, um, but what I would encourage you guys is try to pick up as much as possible. And one of the reasons why we have the podcast, I know some of you have been tuned into the podcast, which, you know, on your device, you can listen to the sermons afterwards. You know, I know a number of you, after you hear the message on Sunday, you'll actually go back and listen to it again during the week. And the reason why you'll do that is because you missed something or you want to um, kind of hear that lesson again to, to kind of get a better grasp of what's being taught. And that's actually the reason, uh, one of the biggest reasons why we put those messages on the website, why we put that podcast out there is exactly for that reason, so that you would have that opportunity to listen to it again and try to get a better grasp of what's being taught. Now, all of this, you know, why so much emphasis on, on teaching? Well, as we get into our passage this morning in Ephesians, we're getting into really um, a, a passage that's very close and near and dear to my heart. You know, we came up with the motto for this church, Growing Together in Christ, and when we came up with that motto, when I came up with that motto, I was thinking of these exact verses, um, chapter 4 in Ephesians, from verse 11 all the way down to verse 16. Because one of the things that I was asked quite uh, frequently is, what is my vision for the church? And that is a common question that churches often ask for pastors, for candidating pastors. What is your vision for the church? And often what I say is, my vision for the church is exactly what God's vision for the church is. And God's vision for the church is encapsulated right in these verses from chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. And we'll take a look at some of those verses um, uh, in just a moment. Um, but what you'll see in those verses is that there is a focus and an emphasis on the idea that I need to equip you guys for the work of service to each other. Okay, that I need to help equip you guys for the work of service to one another. That is actually God's vision for the church, that you equip one another. And the way I equip you to do that is through the faithful proclamation of God's word. Because without a knowledge, without an intimate knowledge of God's word, without an intimate knowledge of who God is, the way he revealed himself, you're not going to be able to serve one another the way he has called us to do it. And in fact, when we get into this passage, you'll see that really the outcome of all of this equipping, equipping is that you would no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wave of doctrine. Because when I look about at Christian America, when I look at, about at the evangelical landscape in America, what I see is a lot of poor teaching all around America. And it has led to churches that have lost all ability to discern truth from error. And in the case of the attacks that come from the enemy, 
you have to understand that while we understand politically what's going on around us, there is certainly, we certainly see the work of Satan all around us. But Satan's biggest attack against the church is not from the outside. It's from the inside. And the only way you can defend yourself is by really knowing the Scriptures. And so that's why these passages, these verses that we're going to look at this morning is so near and dear to my heart. Now, there's a term that um, a lot of the youth would be familiar with. It's the term uh, Trojan horse. If you work with technology, if you work with computers, you have heard the word Trojan horse being used. What is a Trojan horse? Well, a Trojan horse, in computer terms, is basically something that looks harmless that you bring into your computer system. Your, your tablet, your phone, or your, your computer, you take it in thinking that it's an innocent attachment, an innocent document, and then you open it up, and next thing you know, there's all kinds of virus and malware being installed on your computer. And you've got all these pop-ups saying that you need to pay money, you need to call this number, and all those kinds of things. Well, that term, the Trojan horse, came from history. Right? Because when the, when the Greeks had their war against uh, the, the city of, um, of um, what, what's Troy, right? The city of Troy. Yeah, they had their war against the city of Troy. The only way they can get past the fortified barrier of that city was to give what appeared to be a gift, which was a Trojan horse. And they brought in that Trojan horse, which looked like a gift, but inside that Trojan horse was what? Soldiers. And the soldiers... You know, they, they came out of the horse and they basically, um, that's how the victory was won for the Greeks and the city of Troy was, was defeated. And that's also true for us spiritually within the church. The attacks, while we look on the outside and say, oh yeah, we don't believe what the world believes, what happens over time is that people start to accept more and more of what the world teaches and starts to bring it into the church disguised as Christian teaching. And then as people believe it more and more, what that leads to, and we already have it here in the valley, believe it or not, what it leads to is, for instance, churches that say that homosexuality is not a sin. That say that, you know, um, that the condemnation that we see against homosexuality is misunderstood, and if you listen to the arguments, they're going to sound very convincing if you do not examine the Scriptures and know the Scriptures. But if you know the Scriptures and you can understand them, then you will be able to discern when this is a lie from hell. And there are even Christians out there that are supporting the cause of abortion. I mean, there are ministers, there are self-proclaimed ministers of God who actually stand up for a woman's right to be able to kill her unborn baby. And that's how twisted this can all be become. And so that's why it is so important for us to come together and to really know the Scriptures. Now, this morning... Um, originally, I was going to cover verses 11 through 13, and we'll look at that in just a moment. Um, but this morning, I'm actually going to focus on the first part of verse 11, which talks about apostles and prophets. And I'm going to do it for a very important reason, because there's a lot of confusion today. Some of those attacks that are happening in the church is based upon the confusion about apostles and prophets. And if there is any young folks here, any of you who are going to school, any of you who are considering leaving Brawley, going to a major town, you are going to be targeted by churches that are going to convince you that apostles and prophets are for today and that you should listen to them and follow them, that they are an authority even above the Word of God. But as we take a look at uh, this passage, let's go ahead and read, uh, just review what we've seen already. Starting in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, we saw this, the central command to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. 
Verse 3 talks about preserving the unity of the Spirit and then reminded of the sevenfold reality that we all share in common. One body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. And then moving beyond those six verses, we then get into verses 7 through 10, which we covered last week. And this is the idea that while we're all rooted in the same truths, while we all share those common realities that were mentioned previously, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. What that means is that each one of us have received a gift from Christ. And it, this is where the diversity comes in. We are united upon common truths, but we are also united by the diverse gifts given to each and every one of you that is intended to be able to uphold and promote and preserve unity. And then we saw this quotation that Paul had from the Old Testament, essentially that Jesus Christ, that um, he ascended on high, he led, led captive a host of captives, and then he gave gifts to men. And he goes on to show that this prophecy from Psalm 68 was a prophecy about our Lord Jesus Christ. And that the prophecy included Jesus giving power and strength to us through these diverse gifts. That these diverse gifts that each one of you have received, if you have put your faith into Jesus Christ, each one of you have received a spiritual gift that is intended to serve the body of Christ. Well, that leads into our passage for this morning, and we'll look at this, verses 11 through 13, and I'll read through this as well as the passage that comes after it. But in verse 11, then we read this, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And then verses 14 through 16, and this is what I was talking about, the whole end result of this, the whole reason why we receive these gifts, the whole reason why there are pastors and teachers and evangelists and all those positions mentioned is verse 14, that as a result, we are no longer to be children. We are no longer to be tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So we see this emphasis upon Paul that his concern here, the, the, the reason why he is spending all this time talking about unity and the diversity of gifts, the reason why he is so concerned is that he wants us to be protected against the attacks from the enemy that comes up often from the inside. It comes up often from the inside. So as we take a look at our passage for this morning, you'll see that the purpose in these three verses, which I won't be able to cover it all this morning, but the purpose is to show that God's vision for the church is that we be equipped for ministry to one another, that we may grow in godly unity. And the first point is that we, is, is really who Christ gave to equip the church. So God's vision of equipping the church is communicated through these three truths. The first one is who Christ gave who Christ gave to equip the church. So starting in verse 11, and I'm going to focus really on those first two, but we'll read that entire verse. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Now remember that he had been talking about the diverse gifts that 
has been given to each one of us as a measure of Christ's gift, that Christ himself has given to each of us a diverse gift. But here he is focusing on a very um, a subset of those gifts. And in fact, what he's saying here, when he says he gave some as apostles and some as prophets, the idea is that he gave some men back to the church as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists. So, so the gifts that Christ gave, he also gave to the church in the form of gifted men. And you'll notice that these positions, whether we're talking about apostles or prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, well, what he's focusing on here are the positions of proclamation. These are people who teach or proclaim the truth. Okay, these are people that teach or proclaim the truth. But I'm going to focus on apostles and prophets for this morning. And the question is, when we see apostles, what is an apostle? What is an apostle? Now, this is an unusual concept because, as we see in that first point there, the word apostle is not found in the Old Testament. There is no one in the Old Testament that you can point to and say, that man was an apostle. No, there, there was none. Um, and the apostle, as you'll see, it shares the same Greek root as the verb to send in the Greek, to send. Uh, the, the word in the Greek is apostello. It means to send or to send out, as in like on a mission or a task or an assignment. All right, so, so literally, apostle means one who was sent or sent one. Okay, that's literally what it means. And sometimes um, this word can be used for a messenger, a messenger or an ambassador of some sort. All right. In fact, um, it is used often in, in the New Testament as someone who's just bringing a message. But in this case, it became a significant title for those who were sent directly by God. It, was a significant, it became a significant title for those sent directly by God. Now, let me give you some examples of apostles, and most of these you would recognize right away. First example is the original 12. That includes Judas. Even while Jesus was in his earthly ministry, he was traveling with the disciples, at some point he sent them out by twos to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And at that time, that's when the word apostles was first brought up, that he referred to them as apostles because they were being sent out by Christ uh, with a mission, with a purpose. And then, of course, we, we know that in the book of Acts, you know, they were, after Jesus ascended, he told them that you would be my witnesses. But that, in the book of Acts, we saw the next appointment being Matthias, or Matthias, how you, however you want to pronounce that. And basically, if you read through that passage, what you find is that the 11 remaining disciples, because remember, Judas killed himself, he, he died, the 11, 11 remaining disciples got together and said, we need to appoint a 12th apostle. And, and, to, and they said it had to be someone who has been with us from the time that Jesus Christ was baptized by John the Baptist um, all the way to the time of his ascension. And so they drew straws and, and basically came up with Matthias. And actually they, they cast lots, which is equivalent to drawing straws. Um, and then we saw the apostle Paul. Paul, as you know, was at first a persecutor of the church. He persecuted Christians. Um, and uh, Paul then was blinded by Jesus Christ from heaven, and he was basically commissioned directly by Jesus Christ to be his, um, his disciple, his apostle to the Gentiles. And so Paul, though he was not with Jesus Christ from the beginning, he was not there at the baptism of John and at the ascension, at least not that we can see by, by any proof in the Bible. Um, he was actually blinded by Jesus Christ while Jesus Christ was already ascended up into heaven and then commissioned as his representative to the Gentiles. And then the next one is Barnabas. And this 
was a name that actually kind of surprised me. I didn't even think of Barnabas as an apostle, but he's actually referred to as an apostle in chapter 14, Acts chapter 14, verse 14. And this is easy to understand because initially when Barnabas shows up in the book of Acts, he's not referred to as an apostle. But in chapter 13, when he is at Antioch, it's the Holy Spirit who says, set aside for me Saul and Barnabas and send them out. And so at that point forward, he is someone who is directly commissioned by God to go out and be a missionary. And so that's, uh, at that point, that would explain why he would be called an apostle. And then finally, I have others in, in question marks. And, and I just mentioned this because while during the days of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry, we knew who the 12 disciples were. That's mentioned to us multiple times through the Gospels. There's never a complete list anywhere in all the letters that say, well, here's the complete list of apostles. We don't have that list. But we do have to assume that those who lived in that time, they knew who the apostles were. These were people that originally started as the 12 or one of the 12 with Jesus Christ or people who had witnessed God actually directly commissioning them to this duty. Now, let's look at the marks of an apostle, and, and I'll explain to you why I'm doing this, because I want you to understand biblically what an apostle was. Let's look at the marks of an apostle. The first one, as I mentioned, an apostle must have been sent out by God. I mean, that's contained right in the name apostle. The idea is that they have been sent by someone, and the reason why they have special authority is that they have been sent by God. But they also must have been able to produce signs and wonders. So when we say signs and wonders, you will read in the book of Acts, people like Peter and people like Paul performing a lot of the same miracles that Jesus Christ did when he was on earth. And that was the way they authenticated that, yes, we are an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that was meant to provide um, validity to the message that they brought forth. So they had to be able to produce signs and wonders. And initially, these apostles, and I mentioned this already, initially it was limited to those who had witnessed Jesus Christ's ministry from the baptism of John to Jesus Christ's ascension into heaven. And then I have there in yellow that Paul and possibly Barnabas were exceptions. Um, Paul, as far as we know, was not present uh, with those disciples during Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. I don't believe Barnabas was either, but later they would both be called um, apostles. And then finally, I just uh, put up there that apostles were sent to be witnesses and to establish the church. And you see that from even in the beginning of the book of Acts, when Jesus Christ says to the disciples, you are to be my witnesses. I'm going to, he ascends, he says, you're to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the rest of the world. So I, I hope you're getting the picture here. Apostles were directly commissioned by God himself. So that's, that's different from today. So, for instance, um, Gail Cheatwood and that team, the, the dental vision um, ministry team, went down to Oaxaca, Mexico. Um, I wouldn't call Gail an apostle, even though we could say that he was sent by God, but he wasn't sent by God as in a voice coming from God saying, set apart for me, Gail Cheatwood, and send him down to Oaxaca, Mexico. That's not how it worked. You know, he, he was sent as part of the operation of the church. He was sent as, as, the, the work of the, as a part of the work of the Spirit in his life and, and all these circumstances that came about that. So these were the apostles of God. That was the mark of an apostle. And now that we've kind of looked at what an apostle is all about, let me show to you what a prophet is. Let me show to you what a prophet is. So what is a prophet? Well, prophets are found throughout the Bible. We know that, right? You can read through the Old Testament. You see all kinds of references to prophets. You see 
references to prophets in the New Testament as well. So they're found throughout the Bible. And essentially, prophets operated as the mouthpiece of God. They brought forth revelations of God. And when I say revelation, what I mean by revelation, it's basically God revealing himself. We call it revelation because it's revealing something um, about someone. And in this case, it's revealing something about God. So they brought forth revelations. They didn't always bring forth prophecies about the future. So often we think of prophets... We think of someone who's looking into the future, telling us about the future. Well, that could be the case, but it wasn't always the case. And as an example, in the Old Testament, um, the prophet Isaiah was often called, uh, the prophet Isaiah spent decades and decades and decades calling Israel to repent. So while there were some future prophecies that Jeremiah brought to bear, the, uh, much of the, book, uh, of, the, uh, of the book of Jeremiah, if you read through it, is him calling Israel to repent. He was essentially God's mouthpiece used to call them to repent, to turn back to God from their um, wicked idolatry. And then this uh, fourth point is absolutely important. Um, This is how you know a lot of today's prophets are not true biblical prophets because prophets in the Bible were held to the standard of perfection. They were held to the standard of perfection on their prophecies. So when they did bring a prophecy about the future, they were expected that that prophecy would be 100% true. And it said in Deuteronomy 18, in that verse that I quoted, that God said that if they give a prophecy about the future and it does not come to pass, then you are to stone that prophet. Because that prophet did not truly speak for God. And why do I bring this up? Because there are a lot of people today that think prophets are for today. And they will say that prophets just need to be right half the time. Or they just need to be right like 70% of the time. I've actually heard actual numbers being thrown out there. That if a prophet is right this percent of the time, then it is a true prophet of God. And what's happening in a lot of churches today um, is that um, these who are claiming to be prophets are misleading others. And some of them are sincere. Some of them are sincere. Just as by way of personal experience, I I met a young lady um, who had claimed to have the gift of prophecy for nearly 20 years. She had been a believer for 20 years, been going to church for 20 years. She says she has the gift of prophecy. She has blessed many people over the years with the gift of prophecy. So we, we got to talking about some things in the Bible, some things about Scripture, and then um, there was something I wanted to show her from the book of Exodus. So I said, well, let's open our, 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 our Bibles. Let's look at the book of Exodus. And she had to look at the table of contents to find out that Exodus was the second book of the Bible. Now, I don't mean that as as a means of, you know, making fun of her. But my point is this. If you're going to operate as a mouthpiece of God, shouldn't you know the Word of God? You know, and and there's a fascination today, and this is going to be especially important for young folks, you know, that, you know, if you you got kids that are going to go to college in another city, they're going to one of these major cities, they're going to be targeted by a lot of false churches out there. They're going to teach them that they've got living prophets and apostles. And these prophets are just going to lead them astray. And it's going to be filled with people. It's going to be filled with people that that are so obsessed with new revelation and yet have no interest in the revelation that's already been revealed. Even if there is new revelation for today, how would you know it really came from God? The only way you can know is if you actually know the word of God. Because God will not contradict himself. He will not uh, turn back on his prior promises. You know, his, the, the word of God is fully sufficient for life and godliness. 
you know, we know that the scripture testifies to it itself. But let's take a look at how prophets differ from apostles. So what we see here, like apostles, okay, like apostles, prophets serve the important role of teaching prior to the establishment of the New Testament. Okay, so when you read books like 1 Corinthians, you know, that took place in a time in history in which they didn't have the entire Bible that we have now. Okay, we have the benefit of having all 26 books of the New Testament. A lot of those churches had none of them. And so while they were saved by Jesus Christ, what were they to do? They don't have the New Testament scriptures to study, so what were they to do? Well, that's why God provided prophets. Prophets would help share the word of God with them, would help bring revelation to God, would help instruct them and edify them. And in fact, if you're to read through the chapter of 1 Corinthians 14, you will see the word edify showing up over and over and over and over again. The idea is that the prophets were to edify other believers by helping to bring the word of God to them. They were to edify other believers by helping to bring the word of God to them. Now, in terms of apostles and prophets, all apostles were prophets, but not all prophets were apostles. So it's kind of similar to me saying that all lions are cats, but not all cats are lions. Does that make sense, right? We would say that all lions are a, a subspecies of, of, of the larger cat species, but not all cats would be called lions. So the same thing, all apostles were prophets, but not all prophets were apostles. So certainly we would say that the apostle Paul was a prophet. We would say that of all the apostles, especially anyone who has written any of the books of Scripture, they'd be considered prophets. But unlike apostles, prophets were not necessarily called to travel. So remember, apostle, the idea of being sent out, right? It's the idea of being sent out. Prophets were not necessarily sent out. They were normally called to really just kind of minister to a local congregation, to a local church or, or area. So apostles were called out. They were called to plant churches, to establish the church, to, to travel to different areas and make sure the gospel were proclaimed. And finally, apostles were recognized with greater authority. They were recognized with greater authority. You know, at the end of um, chapter 14, or close to the end of chapter 14, Paul actually says that if any apostle, if any prophet among you does not confirm what I write, then he is to be rejected. You know, and, and the, the, even the revelation that comes forth from prophets is to be subject to the other prophets who are present. So in other words, it had to be validated um, by other prophets. Now, looking at apostles and prophets, here's the important question that we must ask ourselves. And I've already been alluding to this, but are apostles and prophets for today? And the short answer, no. Okay, I mean, I could, I could have easily just came in this morning and said, well, apostles and prophets are not for today. But I wanted to explain to you what apostles and prophets were so that you would understand why I say they're not for today. The more we understand about apostles and prophets, see, the apostles and prophets were the foundation of the church. Now, when I say that there are no apostles and prophets for today, it is absolutely true for the apostles, because the apostles, once again, I said, they're the ones directly sent by God. They're part of that first generation. Now, for the prophets, there are at least two exceptions in the future. We know that we have an exception. There are two prophets that appear in the end times. You'll find that in the book of Revelation. There are two prophets that appear at that time. But that's, for, that's at a very special time and for a very special purpose. In fact, I could even argue that the rapture of the church has already happened by then. 
um, so that there is actually no witness from the, from the church um, that's available. And so these prophets are called down to bring the word of God and to bring judgment when they do not obey. But um, those are very exceptional circumstances. They bring about signs and wonders as well. And then when we look at later New Testament books, so for instance, if you were to look at uh, 1 Timothy, if you were to look at Titus, when Paul really talks about instructions to the church, about the people who are to be appointed and, and how the church is to function, what you'll find is that the, those later books, they are not focused on apostles and prophets, but rather they put a lot of focus upon pastors and shepherds and elders and teachers. Because the idea is that once the foundation has been set by the apostles and the prophets, then now you can carry forth the function of the church with pastors, shepherds, elders, and teachers. Once the Word of God is revealed, once the New Testament is available, once we have the written Word of God available to the churches, then we just simply need to teach the Word of God because the Word of God is just as authoritative as the words that came forth from the apostles and prophets. Amen? This is the living and active Word of God. It is sharper than a two-edged sword. So we know that when we hear from the Word of God, we, we are actually hearing the Word of God. In fact, I remember seeing an internet meme that said, um, if, uh, if you want to know the Word of God, then read the Bible. And if you want to hear the Word of God, then read the Bible out loud. So there you go. You want to hear God's Word? Read the Bible out loud. That is God's voice. These are God's words. But in addition to these arguments that I've stated up here above, and, and also that last point that apostles and prophets, they laid the foundation of the church. You'll, you'll see that Paul actually refers to them as the foundation, that, that this is built upon the foundation. And those of you who are in construction, those of you who build houses or whatnot, you know a foundation only needs to be laid once, right? Unless that foundation was not done correctly. You lay that foundation once and then you build on top of that. So the foundation was laid by the apostles and the prophets. Because remember, when Jesus Christ ascended up in heaven, there was no church. Okay, there, there, was no, there was no organized buildings where people could meet in. Those initial believers, which were Jewish believers, actually went to the synagogue or to the temple to worship God. But the problem is they were worshiping alongside Jews who did not believe in Jesus Christ. And even worse, some of those Jews wanted to persecute the church. They wanted to persecute those who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the apostles were called to help build and establish the church, and the prophets were placed in strategic locations to make sure that the word of God was continuing to be proclaimed while they did not have the scriptures. So that foundation only needed to happen once. But I would also argue from church history, from church history. Because if you look at church history, the writings of our church fathers going all the way back to the apostolic age, um, church history affirms that following that initial generation of apostles and prophets, that the church fathers all agree that there were no prophets and apostles. And this is actually not shocking when you consider the history of the Bible. And let me give you an example. Those of you who have studied the book of Genesis and the book of Exodus, from the end of the book of Genesis, okay, we, we've got um, Jacob, that's uh, Jacob in Egypt, right? And then we get to the start of the book of Exodus, that's the life of Moses. How many years have elapsed between the end of Genesis to the beginning of Exodus? Do you guys know? You can shout it out if you know. 400 years. 400 years. So in other words, God had been working through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, and, uh, and, then, um, uh, and then the son Joseph, 
right? Um, but then after that, nothing until Moses. And then when you get to the end of the Old Testament, the end of the Old Testament, the final um, prophetic book we have is the book of Malachi. And then from the book of Malachi, from the book of Malachi to the time that Jesus Christ appears, how many years have elapsed? Do you guys know? Another 400 years, at least. Another 400 years. What's my point? During that 400-year period, you know what the Jews knew? They knew they were not hearing from any more prophets. They wrote more books. They, they wrote books that sometimes we call the Apocrypha. That's another discussion for another day. But there were books that were written that were used for their faith purposes. But they recognized that those books were not written by true prophets. So they knew for those 400 years there was no prophet in the land. And in fact, even the Pharisees and Sadducees, and especially the Pharisees who were considered the leaders, the experts, they did not even claim to be prophets. But now John the Baptist comes, and immediately they know there's a prophet in their midst. What I'm saying is that when there is a prophet, the people of God know there's a prophet. When there is an apostle, the people of God know that there is an apostle. And sometimes there are long periods of time where we don't have people coming forth as prophets because there is no revelation being brought forth by God during that time period. And I would argue that for right now, the canon is closed. What I mean by the canon is closed, the scriptures are complete. All right, the, the, the Bible starts off with the book of Genesis, and the first two chapters describe perfection, right? The first two chapters of Genesis describes a perfect world that Adam and Eve lived in. And then the last book of the Bible is what? It's Revelation. And Revelation ends with the last two chapters. You know what? Describing absolute perfection. So we have the beginning, we have the origins, and then we have all the way to the end. The very last book written was Revelation, which tells us how things are going to end. And I would contend what the scriptures say, that we have everything we need to live a life of godliness. We have everything we need to be able to live faithfully to our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I would say is that church history affirms that from the time of those initial prophets and apostles, there were no more. And what we are being told today, and this is what's happening especially with the larger Pentecostal charismatic movement, and this started in the early 1900s. I won't go into detailed history, but it started in the 1900s, and there was three waves of basically Pentecostalism. Um, and, and the third wave, the, the most recent wave, was really in the 1980s, and then that has continued to, to, to bloom since then. Um, but what we have seen in the 1900s up until now is that there are a lot of people claiming to be apostles and prophets. Um, unfortunately, and he, this leads me to the second point up here, is that the modern appearance of apostles and prophets, they do not match the biblical patterns. They do not match the biblical patterns. So if you know your Bible... And if you understand just those points I shared about apostles and prophets, and then you compare that to what the apostles and prophets today are doing, you will see it doesn't match. It doesn't match. Oh, in what ways does it not match? Well, today's apostles, they don't refer to the Word of God. What they do is they say, God spoke to me to say to you to do this. They are not actually teaching what the Word of God actually teaches. And just like I said, just as my experience with that one woman who claimed to be a prophetess, they don't even know the Word of God in many cases. In fact, when I was in seminary, I had to write a paper on this. 
And, and I read this book written by a guy named R.T. Kendall. R.T. Kendall. He was defending the charismatic movement. He's defending the Pentecostals, okay? But he wrote this book, and he conceded this. On one hand, you have the conservative church. On the other hand, you've got the charismatic church. And he, and he said this. He said this. The, the, the strength of the charismatic church is that they believe in all these supernatural gifts for today. And you know what he said their weakness is? I kid you not. He said their weakness is that they don't know the Word of God. And then on the conservative side, their strength is they know the Word of God. Their weakness is that they don't believe in these supernatural gifts for today. Well, it would amaze me that these gifts would be brought to people that don't even know God's Word, that can't even discern truth from error. And not only that, but the, these, these movements are, are spreading across denominational lines. So the charismatic movement is not limited to Protestants. There are Catholics who are charismatics. You know, so all of this, what we see is that there is no foundation of truth that's holding it all together. So it doesn't match the biblical patterns. And when I look at these churches, what you see is that there is a lack of good fruit overall that's coming from these churches. You know, a lot of people are, are you know, and I'll give you an example. The, we talk about the health, wealth, and prosperity movement. The health, wealth, and prosperity movement teaches you that God wants you to, above all, be rich and wealthy and happy and, and to live your best life now, right? That's, that's what the health, wealth, and prosperity movement teaches. That has overlapped to a great extent to these people that believe that these supernatural gifts are for today. So if you, you think about it, and it makes sense, because for instance, the gift of healing. The gift of healing is for today. Well, that really appeals to people that want to live their best life today, right? But if the gift of healing existed today, then people in that movement would never die, right? To date, everyone still dies. Everyone still dies. We all still die a physical death, but those of us who are put our faith into the Lord Jesus Christ, we know we will live for eternity in heaven. So there are fruits that have come out of this movement that have been unbiblical, that have been negative fruits. And, and a lot of these false promises, I tell you, a lot of these false promises have led people to forsake the faith because they believe it's a total sham. And in one sense, they are right. It is a total sham. The, the, the distorted version of Christianity that they've been exposed to. But the sad thing is that they've never been exposed to the actual truth of God. You see, the truth of God is going to protect you no matter what circumstances you go through. No matter what you face in life, the truth can be found here. And God is very realistic. He's very realistic to tell us. I mean, Jesus Christ even said, if the world hated you, know that it hated me first. Jesus Christ was very realistic to tell us that the world is going to continue to get worse before I return. All these things are in the Bible. And the trials and tribulations, you look at a book like the book of Job, right? You know, Job wasn't afflicted by Satan because of something he did wrong. He was afflicted by Satan because of what he did right. He believed and trusted in God, and Satan went to God and said, you know what, if you take away all the blessings you have given to him, he will curse you. And that's what the entire book of Job is all about. It's about the challenge from Satan to God that Job will curse you if you take away all the blessings that you have given to him and if you allow him to be afflicted. And so Satan starts to afflict him, and throughout the book, even Job's wife says, for goodness sake, Job, just curse God and die, right? But throughout the book, he refuses to curse God. 
So the real word of God as it is portrayed gives us the most realistic account because it is written to us by the creator of the heavens and the universe and the earth. Right? We, we have the creator, we have the words of the creator right in our hands and he tells us the end from the beginning. He tells us exactly how it's all going to end, amen? We know exactly what's going to happen and nothing that has been prophesied to happen already has failed to happen. Everything that has been scheduled to happen has, it, has happened exactly as has been stated here in God's word. And we can rest in that. And there's an amazing miracle in being able to just read the wisdom of God and how he has worked throughout history to bring about all these things together. But let me th hammer this home because I'm, I'm doing all this, you know, and I know this is more of a, almost like a lecture. I, I get it, okay? You know, this is not the kind of sermon you would normally want to go for, you know, and I've got a lot of information on slides. Uh, it's kind of like a classroom setting almost. But, but this is important because I'm trying to protect you from those who are trying to attack from the inside. And let me give you some warnings to show you just how important this is. When we look at the Bible, there are scripture references. And going all the way back to Genesis 3, do you know how the serpent, do you know how Satan is introduced to us in Genesis? He is introduced to us by his question to Eve, saying, indeed, has God really said? And do you understand that Satan operates as the great deceiver? And he knows scripture better than you. He knows scripture better than me. And he is going to take scripture and he's going to try to twist it to fit his own agenda. And so his opening line to Eve was, has God really said? And when Eve said, well, if we eat from that tree, from that specific tree, we will die. What does Satan said? You will surely not die. From the very beginning, he's calling God a liar. And so this is the way Satan operates from the inside. He seeks people to bring about a different truth than what God has already revealed. And we see this warning from our Lord Jesus Christ. What does he say? He says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Sheep's clothing means they look like us. Uh, that, that, that doesn't mean that you can just look at someone and know right away that's a false apostle, that's a false prophet, that's a false teacher. No, because they look like one of us. They look like one of us. What Jesus says in verse 16 is that you will know them by their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. And that includes what they believe, what they teach. You know, their, their lifestyle, how they live. There's one very known, well-known, extremely well-known prosperity teacher that was on the Larry King Show many years ago. And he was asked point blank, is Jesus Christ the only way to heaven? And his response was, I don't know. And he has the largest church in America. Beloved. And I was just told, I haven't used the word beloved in a long time. Someone said, Pastor, you don't call us beloved anymore. It's like, yeah, I've been grouchy. I don't know what it is. But <laughs> beloved, beloved, beloved. If there is ever a sign of bad fruit, that is an example of it. That a man of God who is called to be a shepherd of the flock cannot state clearly whether Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven or not. That is not a mistake that any one of us, even as lay people, even as lay Christians, you shouldn't make that mistake, but let alone those who are called to be pastors and teachers. But also look at Acts chapter 20. Now, during the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, at some point he made a decision that he was going to go to Jerusalem. 
And he knew that persecution was awaiting for him because the Jews have been wanting to kill him. The Jews have been wanting to capture him. And so he, he stops off in an area called Miletus, where he meets with the elders from Ephesus. And, you know, of all the churches that Paul has spent time in, there is no place that he has spent more time ministering to than Ephesus. And so he comes here meeting with the elders of Ephesus. And he says this, uh, he said a lot, but I'm just quoting a part of this, starting in verse 27. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. In other words, I did not shrink from sharing the entire counsel of what God's word has to say. I shared with you the entire purpose of God from beginning to end. All right, but look at this, verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among our own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. This is a hefty warning from the Apostle Paul, saying that you guys, even though I've spent three years with you, even though I've taught you all of the word of God, recognize that people will come from the inside amongst you looking to divide and devour the church. This was on the heart of our apostle Paul, and that's why later when he eventually gets to Rome, he writes this letter of Ephesians, and he tells them about the importance of unity, unity in what we believe, unity in our use of our gifts towards one another but unity as provided through these gifted men given to the church. And that's why for, for me, it's very much on my heart as I come here, my responsibility is spiritually to protect you guys. It's to make sure that the word of God is properly taught and understood and proclaimed. You know, and I, I know that these messages can be difficult to follow sometimes. There's a lot of information here. It gets pretty deep. But I would encourage you, I would urge you to apply yourself as much as possible to listen in. I know from uh, Brett Hauser, Brett Hauser, he, uh, he expects all of his kids as well as the, you know, Jeremy and, and Jessica's uh, children to, to take notes. And, and you know what? One of my messages, which was um, about uh, the, the one faith, one baptism, one God, um, one of those children wrote four pages of notes from that sermon. And when Brett read it, he brought it to me and he said, and he understood it. What I would say to you as parents, those of you who are out here, as I teach and preach the word of God, expect more from your kids. If they are here, if they are attending, tell them to take notes. Tell them to pay attention. Because what we have here are the words of life. And I know some people have said, well, this is more like a Bible study. I can get this in a Bible study. And my question back is, are you getting it in a Bible study? Because I know a lot of us are not even attending a Bible study. If I, sh if I save this for a Wednesday night Bible study, maybe about 10 or 15 of you will show up. I have to share this on a Sunday morning. Because these kinds of lessons are absolutely important to protect you. And I take responsibility for that. And I will never shrink back from preaching and teaching the Word of God. And showing where the attacks are coming from. Let me give you one more verse here. Two more, actually. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14 through 15. 
Paul writes this, No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Paul, once again, giving this, and you can see this is on Paul's heart. This is what he was most concerned about. The attack from the inside, knowing that this is where the spiritual warfare is. Of course, we see Satan operating in the world. But Satan is using the world to try to influence people who will come in from the inside and bring these ideas from the inside. And then Galatians 1, 8 and 9, talking about the gospel, he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. And that word for accursed is condemnation. Let that person be condemned if they bring a different gospel to you. And he repeats it again in verse 9. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. This is how much the faith needs to be defended. This is why I fight. This is why I go into detail into the scriptures because I want you to see and I want you to learn from the scriptures why we need to know what we know. This is ultimately how you will be equipped to serve one another. This is God's vision for the church, that you would learn the word of God. And through learning the word of God, that you would not only learn it, you would not only know it and meditate upon it, but you would apply it to your lives and start to minister to one another. And as you minister to one another, whether you're praying for each other or encouraging each other with the truth, you know, whether you're stepping in when, when someone is down and helping to bear their burdens, you know, whatever it may be, meeting each other's needs, this is what God's vision for the church is, that together we would be strengthened through our, our mutual love for one another by the use of our gifts that God has given us. And even if you don't know your, your gifts, just your humble service to one another, your humble service to one another. Now, main takeaways this has uh, been one of those messages where I really wanted you to understand biblically what apostles and prophets were so that you may be able to discern, so that you may be able to know biblically why the version today of apostles and prophets we have out there do not match the biblical record. Um, be wary of any church claiming to have apostles and prophets. That's number one. The moment you hear that, look, um, God, I don't want to confine God to a box. All right, God can operate any way he wants to operate. But I understand that if he is going to bring prophets and apostles, that there is going to be some concrete proof, that there is going to be some sort of biblical coherence, that there is going to be evidence that can tie the word of God into what they're doing. It's like the noble Bereans, right? The noble Bereans were called noble not simply because they studied the scriptures, but they studied the scriptures to make sure that Paul's word to them was accurate. And that's what you must do to everyone who proclaims the truth. So be noble Bereans who examine the scriptures and validate what you hear. That's why, that's another reason why I go so detailed. It's because if you want to validate me, I'll tell you exactly where I'm getting these truths. I'll tell you exactly why I believe what I believe. And if you don't think I'm being accurate, you're welcome to come talk to me. I'm not going to condemn you. I mean, those are the kinds of conversations we need to have. What does the word of God say? What does the word of God say? And remember this, your ultimate defense against the enemy is going to be your knowledge of the Word of God. That is your ultimate defense. If you don't have the Word of God, and you don't have to know it to the, to the degree that I know it. You don't have to know it to the degree that Terry Norris or Maureen Lynn knows it. 
but you need to be continually growing in it so that the more that you are growing, you don't need to be at, a certain, at this knowledge level in order to be able to discern truth and error, but you are to be continuing to, continuing to grow in it. That is the call of our Lord. Now, it's, if you're here this morning, let me just emphasize to you, I know you've sat through a lot of teaching about apostles and prophets. Let me emphasize to you that above all, the apostles and prophets of God, first and foremost, proclaim the gospel. They proclaimed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were here in order to be able to teach about our Lord Jesus Christ and why he had to come. And if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, let me assure you that contrary to what some people may say on TV, Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. There is no other. There is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved. We all stand condemned on account of our sins, on account of our wrongdoing, and all of us have done wrong. There is no one who has lived a perfect life. And that is because you are by nature a sinner. And our God is a holy God. He is a perfect God. He is a just and righteous God. And he cannot, he cannot just turn away from sin. He must judge it. He must punish it. And that is why... He expressed his love to us by sending his only begotten son. That Jesus Christ, when he went on to the cross, he ended up bearing the punishment of God our Father for the sins that have been committed. And that is the only way our sins can be forgiven. That is the only way our sins can be wiped free. What it requires from you is simply to recognize your need for a Savior and be to confess that Jesus Christ was sent by God to be that Savior, and that through him and him alone, you will have salvation. It requires a commitment to, to follow after him, to repent of your sins. Salvation comes by faith, and you can express your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ starting now. You can even pray it. Just, you, you just pray that, Lord, I confess my sins to you and I follow after you. I know that you are the one who had died on the cross for my sins. You alone. I accept you. I, I, I rec recognize you as Lord and Savior, and now I commit to following you. It doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. None of us are perfect. We're all constantly growing. But all of us, only by the grace of God through his son Jesus Christ and his blood on the cross, can look forward to an eternity of salvation in heaven with God our Father and God the Son. Let us pray.